Sweet, thank you. Ooh. Thank you, Victoria. You good? You good? Sweet. Uh, if you guys are here today, you probably were expecting that we would be in Jonah 4. We're not. Surprise, surprise. Uh, we're actually interrupting uh, the series, in a sense, to uh, begin a new series. Um, we're going to pick up next week in Jonah 4, uh, partly with Josh being gone this week, seeing his mom. Uh, it's a great time to transition um, into a series that we're going to be spending the next six months actually walking through. So for the next six months, once a month, um, you'll see my face on the stage and we'll be walking through a continuation um, of this series. A few months ago, Josh asked me uh, to start thinking through and planning um, a series that I was going to walk through. And thus began the process of trying to figure out, okay, what, what do I, what do I want to spend time talking about on a Sunday morning uh, that I think would be vital to us as followers of Jesus? And out of that series, or out of that thought process, um, a series on the covenants was born. So over the last four or five months or so, I've spent a lot of time um, in the Old Testament just reading on my own, um, as well as I'm currently taking a class uh, walking through Genesis to Esther. Um, and, and throughout these last four or five months, um, I've just realized how important the Old Testament actually is. The more I read, the more I study, the more conversations I have with people in regards to the Old Testament, the more I realize that so often as followers of Jesus, we don't really have that good of an understanding of the Old Testament. For many of us, it can kind of just feel outdated or kind of irrelevant. What does it have to do with us today? This was written thousands of years ago. For others, it kind of feels like the God of the Old Testament seems a lot different than the God of the New Testament. There's a bunch of weird names and weird places and weird stories. It so often feels like a bunch of seemingly disconnected characters, events, and places. And therefore, I don't think we spend much time in the Old Testament. When it comes to our time with Jesus, it feels so much easier to just go to the New Testament and to get that little bit of Jesus for the day or read one of Paul's letters for encouragement and joy. Because as I said, I've been challenged with how important and beautiful the Old Testament actually is to understanding the Bible as a whole. You see, to understand the Bible, the big picture, the meta-narrative, we have to spend time in our Old Testament. See, the more we understand the Old Testament, the richer the New Testament becomes. I mean, we cannot have a New Testament without an Old Testament. And the Old Testament is actually quoted 855 times in the New Testament. But for us to actually understand what those quotes are for, why those references are there, we have to at least have an understanding of what it's pointing back to. We can think of our Bible as one big puzzle. And I think for many of us, we spend the majority of our time kind of on that New Testament section. And we're piecing together all the puzzle pieces, and we're starting to see a beautiful story come together. We're starting to see this amazing image. And then we kind of turn to the Old Testament section, and we can kind of piece together these little bits and stories. We can maybe kind of get this image of Adam and Eve in the garden, or kind of get an image of the flood, or maybe in Egypt where the plague is and where the Ten Commandments come out of in the desert. 
Or we get the story of David and Goliath. But they seem, for the most part, like disconnected stories. And so we kind of look at the box that's on the front of every puzzle, and we see, oh, the New Testament is so vivid and clear. Yet we look to the Old Testament, and we're like, it's kind of a blur. I have a struggle to put these pieces together. And that's really why this series was born, is the covenants play such a big part in helping us as followers of Jesus actually understand the Old Testament. And for many of us, I'm sure the idea or the word covenant sounds like a graduate level course. Like, oh, that's only for people that are in seminary. We're under the new covenant. I don't know about the old, whatever. That's okay. But the reality is the covenants are essential for being a follower of Jesus. They're essential for being a follower of Jesus. Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellham, uh, two theologians, they said covenants are the backbone of the biblical narrative. You see, the story of the Bible is one big story being told. And the covenants help give direction and clarity to that story. So as we grow over these next six months in understanding the covenants, I believe, one, we're going to grow in a better understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And two, a better understanding of our relationship with God. So number one, understanding the, the gospel of Jesus Christ better The reality is all the covenants point to Jesus. They all point to Jesus and our need for a Savior. They find their fulfillment in Christ. You see, the covenants help us see Christ in all of Scripture. I mean, we think of Jesus on the road to Emmaus as it says that he opens up the eyes of these two disciples he's walking with and shows them through the Old Testament where he is present. I love the way Trent Hunter and Stephen Walm say it. They say, the better you read the story of the Bible, the better you read the story of the Bible, the better you can fathom Christ's glory. But if you read the story inaccurately, you, you risk misunderstanding who Jesus is and why his work is necessary, incomparable, and unique. Getting the Bible story right is foundational for knowing Christ. And second, This is going to help us understand our relationship with God. God is a covenantal God who therefore makes covenants with his people. Through Jesus, we as followers of Jesus step into that relationship, step into a covenantal relationship with God. Therefore, understanding the covenants helps us understand what it actually means to be in a relationship with God. I think for many of us, when we, when we think of our relationship with God, we think of it kind of on the level of relationships that we view life. We have acquaintances and friends and family, and we have a spouse. And for many of us, oftentimes we kind of view God as, as the friend in our life. When I was in high school, there was a movement. It was not a good movement, but there was these shirts and hats made. It was Jesus is my homeboy, and they got sold all over the place. And it's that idea for so often, like, oh, Jesus is like my homie that I just, like, go to in my times of need. Or he's that acquaintance that's like, oh, he's, he's really good at math, and so when I have a math problem in life, I'm going to go to him, and he's going to help me out. But other than that, I don't actually spend much time with him. Yet the reality is, is though he might be your friend, first and foremost, he is in a covenantal relationship with you, which is much more of that of a spouse relationship than just simply a friendship. So prior to diving into today's text, it's essential that we actually ask the question, 
well, what is a covenant? And we're going to be walking through covenants over the next six months, and so this definition will begin to grow and grow over time. But simply put today, you'll see it on the screen, a covenant is a chosen relationship between two parties ordered according to specific promises. Again, a covenant is not a word that we often use today. Yet it refers to a means by which we structure a relationship. In our day and age, the word contract is probably much more of what we end up using in that kind of language. It's another way we structure a relationship between two parties. Just think of buying a car, hiring an employee, or renting an apartment or house. You enter a contract with that person. Yet it's important to realize there are some massive differences between a contract and a covenant. A contract involves a relationship for the sake of the obligations. Yet a covenant, it involves obligations for the sake of relationships. See, in a contract, the relationship is secondary, with the emphasis being on these obligations that you have to fulfill. Where a covenant, the relationship is actually the primary and the promises made to each other just serve for the higher purposes of that relationship. And this, though we don't talk about it much today, was very common in the ancient Near East. And covenants simply consisted of this greater power, this king, who would interact with a lesser people. And they'd make a covenant together. And the king would say, hey, I'll offer protection, I'll offer military, I'll offer blessing if you just keep your obedience and loyalty to me. Yet if the covenant is broken, if the lesser people break that covenant with the king, curse will be upon them, punishment will be upon them. And the last thing to know about covenants for this morning is there's two different kind of covenants. There's a covenant of works, and there's a covenant of grace. And you can kind of guess the covenant of works is simply this. Blessings are offered in return for works performed. The lesser people work for the king. Or as Michael Lawrence puts it, do this and you'll live. Do that and you'll die. A covenant of works. And there's also a covenant of grace. And this is instead of the lesser people doing the work for the king to ensure this relationship, the king actually says, you know what? I'm going to be the one to kind of do that work that I would call you to. So if failure comes in that covenant, it's ultimately on me as the king, and I'm going to take the curse and the punishment. And throughout our series, we're going to see both of these kinds of covenants unfold. But this morning, we're going to begin our series with the first covenant in the Bible, the creation covenant. And we're going to walk through kind of three focuses, the role of Adam, the fall of Adam, and ultimately the need for a second Adam. And so we're going to start where every good story starts, in the beginning. I thought I'd keep it super simple, and we can just turn to page one of the Bible. The creation story, the creation covenant, ultimately addresses four of life's biggest questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What is wrong with the world? And how will the world be made right? Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And we know for six days, he created 
He created his good creation. He created everything in it. And then we get into the middle of the sixth day where we're going to pick up our story today in the pinnacle of God's creation where we see the role of Adam unfold. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Which is a beautiful little moment there where that's the only part of God's creation that he blesses in that sense. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. To fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then drop down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So who is Adam? What is his role? Adam can actually be translated as a man or humanity. See, Adam is the first of humanity. He is the first man. And by that, he becomes the figurehead representative of the entire human race. We see this truth emphasized throughout scripture in 1 Chronicles 1 and even in the gospel of Luke. As we look at the chronologies and the genealogies of people, it actually points you back to Adam time and time again, saying he is the father of creation. So if we were ever to do a family tree, we might not know all the gaps in between, but we know we can go back to Adam. That's how far back he goes. As the head of humanity, His role ultimately will be defined, or our role will be defined by his role. What is true of Adam becomes true of us as his offspring. Yet we also see in the midst of this story that that Adam is given a unique role within the rest of creation. And again, not just Adam, but we actually see every human being, male and female, were made in the image and likeness of God unique to all the rest of creation. So what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? Simply put, we're created to be like God and represent him to the world. To be like God and represent him to the world. You see, in the ancient world, kings were actually thought of to be representatives of their God. So therefore, a king would be the image of that God on earth. So the significance of the God of the Bible is that God didn't say, hey, I'm choosing one person to be my image bearer, but I'm choosing all of my creation to be image bearers, to be kings and queens for me, to make my name known, to rule for me. And the verbiage of image and likeness is also the same language that's used for a father-son relationship. We see that in Genesis later, that they show the connection is there between Adam and his sons. It's the same image and likeness they talk about when God makes Adam. So from the beginning of creation, God desires a relationship with his creation. And male and female were created to represent God 
by ruling over creation. Adam's kingly rule is revealed through the fact that he's given dominion, dominion over all of creation. You see, Adam has a role to rule. Therefore, as image bearers of God, Adam is to rule the creation God has blessed him with, but he's also supposed to be fruitful and multiply. And that means he's supposed to reproduce. He's supposed to make more image bearers for God. And we look around the world today and we see we're not, we're not failing in that category. We are continuing to multiply. We're continuing to make image bearers of God. And therefore, since Adam is a representative head of creation, that the role that God gives to Adam is also given to us. So who are we? Why are we here? We are image bearers of the God Almighty. We're image bearers of the God of the Bible. And we are given dominion over the earth to work it and keep it, to love the creation that God has placed us in. And you see, in our ruling, it is important that we point it back to Jesus. He's the one that has given us the dominion, so it is to him that we point our lives. We want to represent and point people to the creator, God. That's because we're in relationship with God. You see, Genesis 1 and 2 leaves us in a beautiful state. We're living in a beautiful garden sanctuary in harmony with each other and in perfect communion with God. Yet we look at the world around us today and it doesn't seem like we're in that garden sanctuary anymore. If anything, it seems we're very, very far from it. So we can't help but ask the question, what is wrong with the world? And that's in the fall of Adam. It's in the fall of Adam. The covenant with Adam is actually laid out in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, which Victoria read uh, right before I got up here, um, is where the covenant is laid out. And it's important to note that in that little section, the actual word covenant is not present, yet all the stipulations and expectations that one would have in a covenant, that kind of things that define one, are all present there. And it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam, representing the human race, enters into a covenant with God. And we see that this covenant has blessings and curses and covenant stipulations to go with it. And so what is the stipulation placed on Adam? It's to work and care for the land that God has entrusted him, to have dominion over it, and then to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the stipulations. The blessing, though it's not directly here, is very much implied. It's a promise of eternal sinless life as we commune with God, because we would stay in the garden with God, and we know that God being perfect can only be with perfection. So we would be with God for eternity. And yet the curse is much more straightforward. You eat of it, you shall surely die. Death is the curse. And in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's loyalty to God 
is put to the test. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So right off the bat, we have the serpent, the deceiver, questioning God and his goodness. In verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of any tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. We see Eve adding words of the Lord by saying, You shall not touch it. So where the serpent deceives and says, oh, is God really that good? Did he really say that? Eve actually goes and adds words to God. Where one takes away, one adds. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired and make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see, we see Adam stood idly by while the serpent questioned God and his goodness, and while his wife lied and added words to God. And he just stood there and let it happen and then consumed of the tree. He was a silent but active participant in the rebellion of God. And it says, And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. See, their natural response to their sin and rebellion was to hide was to hide from God. And if we're honest, don't we do the same thing today? When we fall short, when we sin, when we fail or hurt God or hurt others, so often we want to run away from God instead of running to him. Verse 9, but God, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, oh, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. You see, blame shifting enter the story. As Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent. And since that awful day, blame shifting has run rampant in our culture, in our very lives. You see, Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to work it and keep it. And in their first real trial, they allow themselves to be deceived. They add to the word of God. They question God's goodness. They stand idly by, and then they ultimately just blame everybody else but themselves. They come across the first test and fail miserably. You see, they're given the freedom to eat of every tree in the garden, 
except for one. And it's that one tree. You're like, oh, God must be holding out on me to not give me bad. Through their actions, they broke their covenant with God that was laid out in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Hence, we know if, a, if it's broken, especially one of works, then curses are what follows. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and your dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband's, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed be the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now drop down to verse 24. He, being God, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So when we ask the question, what's wrong with the world? This dreadful day is the answer. This honestly is the worst day in human history. For this was the day that man rebelled against God. They went to war against God, and humanity has joined in ever since. See, we're not just victims or unfortunate bystanders in this war. Now, we are active participants in this rebellion. It was a total role reversal of the created order. For the created said, we want to be the creator. We said to our creator, you know, we want absolute moral autonomy. Let us determine for oneself what is right and wrong, independent of you. And as we look at the world around us, we see that's what we do today, thousands of years later, and we're still living out the rebellion. Human sin has absolutely mutilated the entire created order. For on this day, death entered the world. Pain, sickness, death, broken marriages, abortion, child slavery, violence, genocide. These things were never meant to be. Yet because of rebellion, we live with the pain of being separate from God. I was struck by a statement I heard um, a, a pastor and an author, Greg Gilbert, make this week. He said, every cemetery we see reminds us that Satan is a liar. How true. Every cemetery we see reminds us that Satan is a liar. And because we believed a lie, because we listened to creation instead of our creator, 
the very beast we were supposed to rule over, death wins the day. Like God said to Adam, to dust you shall return. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 22. It says, for as in Adam all die. Or Romans 3, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And all fall short of the glory of God. You see, being heirs of Adam, we are born into the rebellion against God. We are born short of the glory of God. And the thing is, not only does this fall on humanity, this actually falls on the very earth we were told to steward and care for. See, Romans 8 makes it clear that the earth is stuck in corruption. It's enslaved to it. And it's actually groaning in the child pains, just waiting for a day when things might be made right. As Hunter and Wilhelm state, they say, God has cursed this world in response to our sin so that every awful thing that happened in this world, from disabilities to hurricanes, serves the reminder that we are in rebellion against our creator and that the condition of this world is no longer normal. The world we were commissioned to have dominion over to keep and work, to care for, we just cause pain and destruction. So what does a covenant God do with the rebellious people? He removes them from his presence. We see that at the end of chapter 3. They are taken out of this garden sanctuary where they commune with God. From communion with God to separation from God. Never to see the face of God lest they die. They're kicked out and we have an angel with a flaming sword blocking the way into the garden, blocking the way to the tree of life. Since that terrible day, we have been living east of Eden. And east of Eden sucks. See, after the fall, separated from God, kicked out of the garden, we're stuck asking the question, how are we ever going to find our way back to Eden? And when and if we do, how are we going to actually be able to enter the garden and to actually eat the tree of life? See, brothers and sisters, we need a second Adam. Though chapter 3 might be the most tragic chapter in the Bible as we see humanity take on God in rebellion, it also provides us with a glimmer of God's grace that leads to hope. You see, for the grace of God always leads to hope. From the midst of the curses, God promises and points to redemption. In the midst of the curses, God answers that question of how will this world be made right? How will my rebellious creation come back to me? And he says there's going to come a day where there's going to be a second Adam, ultimately the last Adam. God curses the serpent in 3.15 and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and she shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise, I mean, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Through Adam, all his offspring are born into death. Yet God points to a day when the offspring of evil will be born 
and will defeat Satan and will ultimately defeat death. This curse of sin and this curse that we experience, the world experience, will end up being set free. God promises that he will not destroy the entire human race, but he gives us hope. But we need a second Adam. We need a new representative of a new creation. We need an Adam that when tempted and tried by God, does not fall to that temptation, but rather stays true to God and stays true to his covenantal relationship with him. See, there's actually a theological term for Romans 3.15. And that term is proto-evangelium, and it actually means first gospel. You see, we get the first two chapters of the Bible, this glorious relationship with God, and three being the worst chapter in the Bible, as we see our relationship with God broken and separated from God. Yet in the midst of that, the first gospel, the first good news is given to a broken and hurting people. God extends grace and says, I have good news for you. There's coming a day when a second Adam will come and make all things right. That second Adam will take the rebellious people and fix our relationship with God. There's coming a day when the true and better Adam will look death in the face and say, no more. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? As we've already seen in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 says, for as in Adam all die. Yet the beauty is that that verse does not end there. For rather the second half says, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. On the screen we have Romans 5, 15 through 19, and it says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's, that's Adam's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's Adam's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's Adam's trespass, death reigned to that one man Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, that is the eating of the tree, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, the cross, leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by one man's, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Where Adam failed in his role, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam disobeyed God and it led to death for all. Jesus actually humbly obeyed God to the point of death so that he may die and we may live, taking on the death that we deserve. And it's through his death, through that act of justification, that we are made right with God. Through the cross of Christ, that curse has been lifted. And now we can actually live forever with God. 
the beauty of the gospel. All who put their faith in Christ, the true and better Adam, become a new creation embedded in a new humanity. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Our physical birth leads to death. Yet a spiritual birth in Christ leads to life eternal. The Bible begins with God and man in the garden. Yet that only lasts for two chapters. And then we see destruction come upon our relationship with God. Destruction be put upon this earth. Man and woman are kicked out of the garden. Yet the beauty of the Bible and the beauty of the God we serve is the Bible doesn't end at the end of chapter 3. Rather, the Bible ends in Revelation. And in the last chapter of Revelation, John says this, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Through Jesus Christ, the true and better Adam, the curse has been lifted. Welcome back to the garden. Where we get to rule with God and be in communion with him to enjoy and work his beautiful creation. So the reality is every one of us in this room is living according to one of these atoms. We're living either the way of the first atom or the way of the second true and better for those of you this morning that are following the way of the first Adam, I need you to realize that that leads to death. You're still under the curse of a failed and broken covenant. Yet the, the beauty, again, of this gospel, the beauty of this whole message is that you're not stuck there. But rather, we can come and go to the true and better Adam, Jesus Christ, and realize that through him, upon profession of faith, upon saying, yes, I'm a rebel against God, free me from this rebellion, make me right with you, upon realizing what Christ has done for you, you can step out of death and into life. And so I humbly ask you, if you're in that situation today, if you're wrestling, please come talk to me after because I would love to engage with you in that conversation. And second, if you're in this room and you're following after the true and better Adam, you're following after Jesus Christ, 
my hope and call this morning is that we just spend time adoring God and who he is. That from the foundation of this earth, he made us to be in right relationship with him and sent his son to this earth that we may actually be in right relationship with him after the fall. Yet so often, even as followers of Jesus, we just give in to the ways of the first Adam. We give in to ways that bring death to us, that bring destruction to this world. And so I call us to, to look to the true and better Adam. Look to the new humanity that God has called us to. For Jesus is worthy of all praise, all glory, all honor. May we cling to the words of Jesus. May we cling to the identity that God has given us. He has made us right with himself. May we be men and women that praise God for the true and better Adam, who's restored God's rebellious creation to their right place before a gracious and good God. Let's pray. Lord God, we are thankful for your words. Lord, we're so thankful that your story, the story that we've been brought into, does not end at the end of, of, at the end of Genesis 3. Rather, the whole Bible is the story of bringing us back to you, of making us right before you. God, we praise you for your son. We praise you for the true and better Adam in which we have life, in which the curse has been lifted, and now we can enjoy the blessing of eternal life, the blessing of communion with you. Lord Jesus, we're thankful. May we live as men and women who live out that thankfulness and praise you for your grace. In your name, amen.